First, I just want to define placebo. 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 Most people think when I say placebo, it's all in someone's head. You know, it's not a real thing. But the real reality is, I'm having a biochemical, physiological change occurring. But the difference is, there was an active medication given to me. It was an inert medication. Inert, inert. medication. Inert. Because the world is round, it turns me on. But I would change the word from belief to expectation. Because it's the expectation of what will follow, whether it's positive or negative, that changes that physical state. Placebo. Humans are not the strongest. We're not the bravest. We don't have the sharpest teeth. The thing that we're really good at is what we call plasticity. Plasticity. Our brains and bodies are enormously adaptable. There's very little evolutionary bias that you would succeed at a higher rate if you were a better believer. But what we see is there's no question that people that belong survived and reproduced at higher rates than people that were ostracized from the group. Most religions are based on a lot of what we call costly signals or like signs that you're part of the group. I wear garments, therefore you can trust me. A hundred percent of human survival is based on our ability to be taken care of by someone else. That process can be manipulated. The key here is understanding that there's a physiological change happening. Expectation. People that belong to the city. People that were ostracized from the group are enormously adaptable. Survival and reproduction. It was an inert medication. That process can be manipulated. Most religions, social or psychological, it's a social or psychological trigger that then causes the chemical response. The expectation changes that physical state. That process can be manipulated. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. Okay, on three, we'll do five. <laughs> Hello, listeners. This is Glenn Oslin, and Infants on Thrones is ten years old. Now, some of you have been on this ride with me the entire time, and many of you haven't. Regardless, I always appreciate hearing from listeners who have changed over the years, as I've changed and this podcast has changed. We're all always growing from one thing into something else. And it's been an incredible ride. It's still going, of course. But I want to commemorate this 10-year birthday of Infants on Thrones by revisiting some of my favorite infant episodes from the past. And I'll tell you what all of this podcasting has done for me personally. It's made me very interested in mental, emotional, and yes, even spiritual health. This is why I'm in the process of becoming a licensed therapist. It's why I've been working as a life coach for the past few years. And it's why I keep making episodes for this podcast, to rewire my own brain, to reshape my own confirmation biases, so that I can truly look for the good, so that I can truly put down the weapons that I use against myself, and so that I can intentionally focus on putting more peace, understanding, acceptance, joy, and playfulness into this world as much as I can. Now, if you find this podcast valuable and you'd like to say thank you, 
by donating a few dollars per month. Please sign up to support the podcast on Patreon. You can find details on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you or someone you love is struggling with severe anxiety, fear, grief, shame, chronic anger, depression, or any mental, emotional, or even spiritual challenges, and you'd like some encouragement, support, and some tools that can help, please reach out to me at infantsonthrones at gmail.com. Let's talk. I am here for you, and it won't cost you a thing. And now, how about a blast from the past with one of my favorite infant episodes from days gone by? Here you go. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 817 reflections The Placebo Part 1. And for those of you who've been paying attention, I have been using different iterations of the Beatles song because for introduction background music for a long time. And this episode, originally published September 7th, 2014, was the very first time that I ever did anything like that with the Beatles because version. So that was kind of cool for me to listen back to. And really, this original two-part placebo series is one of my all-time favorite infants episodes and I'll tell you why in a minute but first I recently discovered Nathan Fielder my name is Nathan Fielder and I graduated from one of Canada's top business schools with really good grades now I'm using my knowledge to help struggling small business owners make it in this competitive world now Nathan Fielder is a very dry deadpan Canadian comedian who did a hilarious show on Comedy Central called Nathan For You. Nathan Fielder is all about poking fun at the unwritten rules of life and stretching the limits of social conventions. It's right up my alley, so I'm kind of surprised that I never came across him before. But thankfully, my oldest daughter last week recommended Nathan Fielder to me. She suggested that I watch a show that he made on HBO called The Rehearsal. I knew within the first 10 minutes that I was going to love this thing, and I binged it all in one night. It's one of the most incredible things that I've ever seen. The length that they go to to try to understand the inner workings of the human mind by trying to rehearse a confession to someone, maybe an expression of shame, trying to be prepared for any eventuality, and still never really being completely prepared, never really understanding the human condition despite the great lengths that they went to try and understand it. I don't, the whole thing was just incredible. If you haven't watched it, you know, check it out. I thought it was fantastic. So I went back and I started watching episodes of Nathan For You, where Nathan plays a tongue-in-cheek small business consultant 
who somehow convinces small business owners to try out some of his crazy marketing ideas to grow their business. So for example, in one episode, he tells a realtor that if she branded herself as the ghost realtor and could guarantee that her houses are not haunted, well, that would give her a competitive advantage because no one else is doing that. And who wants to live in a haunted house? So this is an example of these premises that Nathan will set up and then bring in real people and kind of give them weird things to do and catch their reactions on camera. It's fascinating to watch. The realtor agrees to do this, and so Nathan finds a psychic ghost hunter guy. He does. He uses a lot of Craigslist stuff. So this ghost hunter comes, and he clears the house of any and all ghosts. And one ghost actually has uh, one house actually has a ghost, and the psychic ghost hunter guy he casts out the evil spirit, and the realtor she she's believing all of it as she's watching it. And Nathan's kind of messing with the psychic guy, you know, like he asks him to cast out the evil spirit from his body that has been inhibiting the growth of his male member. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command all of you demons, if there's a demon there, um, you know, uh, affecting this man's penis, male organs, making uh, smaller, whatever, if there's any demon there lodged in his penis right now, come out in the name of Jesus Christ. Come out. I mean, it's really funny to watch. But the realtor, she's definitely a believer. And as soon as he casts out the devil of small penises, she asked the psychic to cast out the demons that were causing her severe back pain. And so she sits there and he does his thing. And it, it, it's uncomfortable to watch. It's kind of amazing. And seeing her reaction to it. And she definitely feels real relief from her pain like like this really worked and it's all caught on camera and I was watching it and it made me think about this Infants on Thrones episode this placebo series that we did back in 2014 where Chelsea Shields who's an anthropologist and did her field work in Ghana I think if I remember right she told us about some experiences that she had with tribal leaders and that reminded me of this psychic guy who was casting the evil spirits out of the realtor and so then I started thinking about how my reaction to these kinds of things has shifted over the years. And that made me want to reissue this episode as part of the Reflection series and provide this new introduction because here's what I found when I looked closer at myself. I would have heard the word placebo and I would have thought, oh, it's just fake. It's phony, pretend, fictional, not real. That's what placebo means. Sure, there are clinical studies that show that placebos are effective about 30% of the time. And in some cases, placebos have been effective up to 60% of the time. Which means that instead of the chemical altering the body to provide some kind of healing or relief, it's a person's belief that's actually making these changes in the body. Now, how is that even possible? Is it really possible that belief is actually more powerful than we give it credit for? Is it possible that the things that we tend to think are phony, pretend, fictional, not real, that they actually do have some influence on reality that we just don't completely understand? I mean, confirmation bias is a pretty powerful thing, trick of the mind, right? So since recording this back in 2014, I've learned a lot more about the brain than I used to know. I've learned more about hormones and cells and DNA and 
about consciousness and the impact that our mood can have on our overall health. I think this is an important thing to keep in mind when we're leaving the Mormon church and having to sort through what's true, what's phony, what's not, what's real, and why is it that our believing family and friends, that they're still smiling and happy and it works for them, even if it doesn't work for us. Uh, Is there really something to this? Is there something that we could actually care about and respect? Is there something that um, maybe the mood that we carry uh, can impact our own health? I don't know. (laughs) Now, this two-part conversation is one of my favorites from the 10 years of doing Infants on Thrones, and so it's absolutely my pleasure to re-release it now as part of this reflection series. And so, hang on to your hats and glasses, because this here's the wildest ride in the wilderness. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and guess what? I'm really excited about today's episode. Does it sound better now? Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. This is Chelsea Shield Strayer. She's a well-known Mormon feminist who founded WAVE, which is Women Advocating for Voice and Equality. She's also on the executive board of Ordained Women. She's a TED Fellow and is nearly finished with a double PhD in both cultural anthropology and biological anthropology from Boston University. And she spent a lot of time in Ghana studying the Ashanti. This isn't the first Mormon-themed podcast she's been on, but it is apparently the best. So be honest. Some of the better questions you've gotten from this group than other podcasts... Oh, heck yeah. So this is another one of our discussions that went nearly three hours and could have gone much longer. We seem to be doing that a lot lately. So we'll break this up into two parts. In part one, we get to know Chelsea a little bit. We learn about her background, uh, the reasons she chose cultural anthropology as a field of study. We spent some time talking about culture, both what she saw in Africa and how that changed the way she started seeing things back home. We talk about witchcraft and placebos and cultural relativism and we end part one with a minor debate between chelsea and fellow infants matt and scott who challenged the idea that alternative medicines could possibly be more beneficial in some cases than biomedicine now in part two we start off with the definition of placebo that it isn't that the placebo is just a sugar pill it's nothing and that the benefit that a person gets from it is in their own head a figment of their imagination. No, it's not that. Instead, a placebo actually creates real, measurable biochemical responses in people. But that change is not the result of an active ingredient in the medicine or treatment. It's the result of that person's social and cultural expectations. I like to think of it as Dumbo's black feather. But I be done seen about everything when I see an elephant fly. A Dumbo didn't just think he was flying, he was actually flying. You know, as cartoon elephants with really big ears tend to do. But the feather wasn't behind what he did, it was Dumbo's belief in the feather. So, you know, I mean, if you can compare it to Dumbo, gotta be true. Now, part two also explores the evolution of the human body. Why did we evolve so that our internal punishment and reward systems would shoot chemicals out of our brains in response to achieving or violating cultural expectations? We also explore the idea that just as there are placebos, which have a positive effect, there are also nocebos that can have a negative effect. 
And then, of course, you have the term that I'm coining for you all today, the mocebos, which are the positive or negative effects of achieving or violating the cultural expectations of Mormonism. Eh? So buckle up, because this is going to be fascinating. And for some, possibly frustrating. And for others, possibly life-changing. And apparently, we asked some really good, great, brilliant questions. I, I mean, really. It's a good question. It's a really good question. It's a great question. That's a great point. That's a great comparison. That's a brilliant question. That's a great question. Yeah, I know. You know, when I first was doing it... Sorry, Chelsea, I couldn't help it. And just in case any of you listened to our Shakespeare in the Bush minisode and went away from that scratching your head a bit, I'll add some explanation at the end of part one here to connect what you heard there to what you're going to hear here. So Chelsea, you're pretty much a podcast pro. You've done, you've done this. You've done this multiple times. <laughs> yeah, and and so I I listened to the family or no it wasn't a family history guy it was the Mormon history guy I listened okay. to that one and then that link that you sent to me that was the it was like a BYU right the interview the radio interview. radio interview yeah but I haven't heard any of the Mormon matters or you, you did a Mormon stories one too uh huh mm-hmm. was it just you or were you like a panel. No, it was part of a conference. It was like oh, um, a live, okay. yeah. a live recording of a conference in DC. Oh, okay, right. All right. So uh, the 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 way we do it, uh, we do a lot of post uh, editing stuff. So we we just start it rolling and have a conversation, and then add stuff later on. So we're 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 going now. And if there's something that you say and you like want to back up and go, I I, I want to say that again. It's totally, <laughs> okay. totally easy to do. So you, you've met Scott. I have. We hung out this weekend, actually. Yes, we did. Cool. <laughs> and and what, what were you doing in Phoenix? You were. So I was things. actually speaking. It's kind of a strange connection, but I was speaking at a national hemophilia conference <laughs> on pain management. So how to manage pain with social and cultural um, kind of behavioral adjustments rather than just pain medication. People tend to get addicted to pain medicine. There's lots of side effects. And I kind of go over a lot of ways we can mediate pain with just the way we approach it. And and that was something, Matt, you said you were interested from the, uh, the Ted blog, right? Yeah. And and it was less the, the physical pain management, but her, uh, the, the discussion about, um, Kind of the, the social pains, anxiety, exactly. right. heartbreak, and those types of things, and how can can those same strategies be applied uh, to those uh, to the I guess the emotional emotional right. trauma? Right, yeah. right. That's a great question, by the way. Um, yeah, so I was there for that. We can definitely get into that if you want. Yeah. I don't know if we want to start out that, but so I was there to kind of present at that on a Saturday, and then on Friday we just kind of said let's get some Mormon feminists together and we'll have, you know, I thought it was going to be like in someone's living room and we're going to like sit around and talk. Ascot ended up being like a rented out room in the city with like 65 people and like Q and a, it was like pretty intense actually. Yeah. Yeah, It was a, it was a pretty big crowd for a Friday night. Yeah. Well, you've got, you've got a pretty strong, uh, Exmo group or I, I, would you, would would you classify it as Exmo? Scott, like Mormon stories group or whatever. That group is in Phoenix. Right. There's a huge group down yeah. there. Oh, you're talking to me. Yeah, I was talking yeah, to you. We've got a big, we've got a, a really big, um, 
I don't know, we call it the Phoenix Open Mormons group that's about 500 people now wow. in, our, in our Facebook group. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, we, can, we, we can get some big crowds. If, Do you, if, yeah. if, you, if you have to. a draw, I mean, you could easily have 300 people if it was just... If if there was an event that was worthwhile, I think you know. I, I, it's well, just... thanks a lot, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I meant like a party, like a big party. Worth a while. Yeah. No, I'm just. Yeah, that did come off really badly, but I'm totally. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I don't throw my I don't throw my uh, house parties anymore. They got too big. Yeah, and thrown under the bus. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Son of a. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. All right, so I I thought I put together a little informal get to know you quiz that I, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna put you on the spot and okay. uh, just ask you a series of questions and you just you know give me the answer that comes to your mind. So uh, one you probably get all the time, paper or plastic? Uh, paper okay. always. All right, <laughs> um, beach or mountains? Mountains always. Okay. Relief Society or Elders Quorum? Elders Quorum, I would be grateful to be in there, an actual debate. Really? And the only reason I say that, because <laughs> I like Relief Society, yeah. but I'm an intellectual and I'm an academic. And what I find is when I debate men, we leave the conversation, even if we disagree, with a disagreement of opinion, right. without hard feelings. What I've realized in Relief Society is that to have, and this makes sense if you study the culture of gender in America, but to have a disagreement means one of us is wrong. Uh, and someone leaves the conversation feeling like either they're wrong or that I think they're wrong. And so it becomes, um, uh, it's harder to politely and re- respectfully, dis- politely is not a word, so let's edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> it's harder to respectfully disagree in Relief Society. And that's very hard for me as someone who really thrives in kind of the headspace of debate. And so Relief Society has always been a hard thing. Even though I've been a teacher for most of that time, it's been hard for me. Cool. That's, that's a, a, a way bigger answer than I expected, but that's fantastic. I think you're setting a standard for some of the rest of these questions. Go ahead, Scott. No, I, I was just going to say I have to, I have to say from the other night when Chelsea was here, um, during the Q&A session, she asked people to, make a, to form a line and I, I kind of jumped up and, and went first in line to, to ask a question because I was, you know, really excited about the things we were talking about. And she called me out for being an aggressive man that, that you know, jumped, jumped to the front. She said that was <laughs> in, indicative of our, our gender roles or something. So. <laughs> Although was, in our group, we do have know. some aggressive women. So <laughs> Okay, that's good. No, I was just teasing you. I, I was I just, know, like, I'm just teasing the group that, like, the line that formed was all men, basically. Um, and this idea of public forums of discussion tend to be particularly men, right? And, well, I think- um, I think you're right, and especially as as it relates to what you said about Relief Society. I mean, uh, anecdotally, that seems to be absolutely true. So my husband and I are both professors, and he'll go to um, – we'll have the same lesson, right? So I'll go to Relief Society, he'll go to priesthood, and we talk about the lesson after, and it's drastically different – discussions. And not only that, we can say the exact same thing and we get drastically different interpretations. I'm considered, you know, I'm kind of, um, looked down upon for wanting to debate heavily or not agree with everything. And he's kind of looked up upon as, Oh, he's the professor in the room. Right. So it's just an interesting 
conundrum in our culture. All right. Star Trek or Star Wars? Ooh, neither. I'm not a fan. Oh, wow. <laughs> but I'll take science um, nonfiction all the time. But science fiction is harder for me. Interesting, right? Oh, okay. Would you rather have a personal psychic reading or sit in on a hypnotist show? Hypnotist. All right. I think it's fascinating. Neil Diamond or not Neil Diamond? Cozy we are. Closer than far. Ooh, Neil Diamond every day. Oh my gosh. There are two types of people in this world. Those who like Neil Diamond and those who don't. My ex-wife loves him. Okay, uh, dualism or materialism? <sighs> oh, now we're talking. Yeah, that was, that was for you, Scott. Materialism? And only because I think dualism is a Western academic bias that's not accurate to the lived experience. Okay, you got to unpack that a little bit. <laughs> the concept of dualism is not accurate. Um, where I would actually, if I was answering that question without the binary, I would say pluralism. That's a more realistic, um, realistic portrayal or theory of the world in which people interact and live is pluralistic rather than dualistic. And so a lot of the Western philosophy that came out of dualism, that came out of Descartes, like... I think is flawed because of its binary. So how would you describe pluralism then? So pluralism, this is more of the modern um, Kwame Achebe cosmopolitan. That's the book that was recently out. The philosopher from Africa is basically where I do my research, which is in West Africa. We see a ton of pluralism. So they believe in Joseph Smith. They believe I might've gotten the name of that author wrong. So let's go back and we can edit that out. But so pluralism is a belief in multiple different theories at the same time coexisting in one. So, for example, the people I work with can believe in Allah. They can believe in their traditional gods and priests and their pantheons. They can believe in Joseph Smith. They can believe in Jesus Christ. To them, why does believing in one negate the belief in another? You can have all of them at the same time. And so part of the my mind-body dualism, binary kind of, even the Levi-Straussian um, dismissal of that philosophy is it's very Western, and it puts everything into binaries, which is not the actual experience of most people throughout the world. Follow-up, Scott. I don't have a follow-up for that. So, are, <laughs> are, But are, are we talking about the same thing that, you know, that you have a spirit, that there's, there's more to existence than just your brain and that there's some right. spirit that's outside of yourself. And you're saying it's not, it's not accurate to, people, to, to, to the global lived experience to classify that as dualism, where there's actually right. a plurality of things that could exist outside of yourself. Right. So, for example, I talk about this a lot with people. I had a big debate at Sunstone with a UBU philosophy professor. We were talking about what is truth. And he kept going back to the intellectual, cognitive, you know, deductive reasoning of truth. And I kept saying, look, something can be cognitively illogical, but still be socially true, right? Or psychosocially true or emotionally true in the sense that it, you know, does whatever the truth claim is when it becomes to a social connection or something. So there's different levels. Something can be physically efficacious, but not be cognitively accurate. So I can get receive a priesthood blessing as an atheist and it can still be efficacious, without it being true. Does that make sense? So I feel like the lived experience 
um, is quite pluralist. Now, for getting down, this is why I said materialist earlier, for getting down to kind of the Steven Pinker ghost in the machine, do we have a soul or is it all just neural networks? I shocked my entire graduate class by agreeing and saying, I actually think it's all neural networks. I don't think we have an immaterial spirit or soul in the way that we've come to kind of conceive of this. Um, And this is when I was very believing. Um, I believe that, you know, our God, our Mormon God works through natural means. He's a biochemist. He's a... um, He's a, you know, a physiologist. He understands the way that neural synaptic connections work. And I think that that, to me, is the miracle of evolution and the miracle of science is the complexity. So that's, you know, I don't, I'm a total materialist when it comes to that. So a, a materialist belief in God, in a, in a material <laughs> God. Now, I don't know where I stand today. Okay, that's all right. So you're, you're talking about previous, previous Chelsea. Right, okay. right, right. So in graduate school, they were shocked because you were at BYU. Is, is that right. right? They assumed that anyone religious would believe in this kind of ghost in the machine, soul sure. directing everything. And I don't think they understood that deep at the heart of Mormonism is actually this this understanding of the natural world and that we, we believe miracles or even the spirit works through natural means. And I think that that's kind of a fascinating concept of our past that gets lost sometimes. Cool. All right, so so final final question that I prepared: R- Richard Dawkins or Joseph Smith? Oh, that's a tough one. Well, Dawkins on evolutionary biology, Joseph Smith on theology. Yeah. All right. Anything outside of evolutionary biology that Richard Dawkins talks about, for example, culture or the meme, most of us in anthropology think is pretty um, pretty bad. <laughs> to say that kind of politely. We just don't think he has much, much legs to stand on. Um, but when he talks about evolutionary biology, he's very good. So in small quantities, Joseph Smith, the reason why I choose him with theology is I think that there's a hopefulness in his theology um, that I think I will always admire, respect, and, and desire, quite frankly. It's funny you say that because there's a meme that's going around the internet that says, <laughs> should I listen to Richard Dawkins? <laughs> and it says, is he talking about evolutionary biology? Yes. Is he saying anything else? No. So I thought that was brilliant a couple weeks ago when I saw it and you just affirmed it. Oh, that's great. Especially, that's cool especially when he's talking about, you know, sexually, sexual abuse. Right. Right. Yeah. Just right. tell him. Yeah, I've gone and listened to him twice when he's been here, and I read a few of his books, and I have to completely agree with that sentiment. I really like him on certain areas, and then certain areas, it's just, he's off base. But You know, I feel the same way about Jared Diamond. I critique his stuff a lot, where when they're really in their own field, they do a great job. But I think people haven't traditionally given, uh, besides Margaret Mead, right, people haven't traditionally given anthropologists a lot of um, credentialed authority that we know what we're talking about in human behavior and society. Um, but really when these, when these scientists start talking human society, even E.O. Wilson, they really fall short. They, they, they just miss a lot of the theory. They miss a lot of the background. They miss a lot of the, the stuff we've been doing for years. Right. And so part of that makes me just think anthropologists need to become more famous and write more books. So people read our stuff, but you know, we'll get one some someday. <laughs> All right, interesting. So, so your background is 
first as a cultural anthropologist and then as a biological anthropologist. So there, there's got to be like almost a foot in both camps there with with Dawkins as as right. a, a a biological anthropologist. Anyway, so right. let, let let's talk about the the cultural anthropology part of that and maybe just. For for people out here listening that don't know what that is, you could just give a, a really quick explanation of what you study and maybe why why you got interested in it in the first place. Absolutely. So um, cult- anthropology is basically, if you break it down, is the study of man, which I wish it said mankind, but, you know, whatever, the study of man. Yeah. Um, and it's basically... Um, how we evolved everything from our body to our society to the things we create. So when we say culture, people often assume it means artifact, opera, like all the creations that humans have made over time. And that is part of it, the cultural artifacts that we've created. But it also encompasses how we behave, how we interact, our political systems, religious systems, familial systems, kinship systems. So it's basically, um, I always tell people, it's the greatest thing to study in the world because any interest you have from dance to cooking to political, um, you know, warfare, you can study it in anthropology. It's just a great field to be in. Um, so I got interested in anthropology originally um, as a BYU-Idaho student. I was actually going to run track for Ricks when it was Ricks. Um, so I went up to Ricks on a scholarship to run track, and then they got rid of track that year. <laughs> and I was at BYU-Idaho having to figure out what I'm going to do if I'm not an athlete. And I realized, hey, I really like... I really like cultures and languages and peoples. And at the time, they only had international studies. And when I got back to BYU, after a couple study abroad programs, they had anthropology. And I found, I found, you know, my one true love, which has always been anthropology. Now, Chelsea, did they get rid of the track program at Rick's because they figured out that you have to wear shorts? It's <laughs> <laughs> a great question because the rules are absurd. <laughs> yeah. My my sister and her new convert husband went to Rick's right after they got married. He's just trying to figure out Mormon culture. And she saw President Clark. She walked up to him and said, hi, I'm a student here. This is my new convert husband. We're so excited to be here. And he looked down at her shoes, and they happened to be flip-flops. And he said, well, I hope next time you're more appropriately dressed. Oh. <laughs> oh. So it's a crazy place. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. All right. So, so then from, from BYU, you, uh, you, you found your one true love, anthropology, and you got interested in Africa, or were you interested in Africa before that? How, how did that happen? So BYU-Idaho, I was super interested. I always wanted to go to Africa. I took African studies classes. I don't know why. It was kind of chaotic, um, as in Don Quixote, not um, chaotic. <laughs> it was just a stupid, it was a stupid, young, I think we've all met these girls, right? And I was one of them. I just want to go to Africa and like save the world, like a Mother Teresa syndrome, where I was so um, naive that I thought, here's a call it, you know, a girl from Utah who has never left the country in my life. And I'm going to go over to Africa and like somehow help people, right? It was so naive. But at the time that's, I mean, I, I have to just be honest to who I was back then. It was just a naive dream. And I think I've, I've talked about this before in a podcast, but so I'll make it quick. But I was 19 years old and I was getting a lot of pressure to marry my boyfriend who was an RM from my institute director, my bishop, my home bishop, my, you know, my grandparents. Um, people would ask things like, well, do you hate marriage? I was like, I'm 19. <laughs> so Africa became kind of this fake 
lifeline. I would say things like, well, you know what? I'll make that decision once I follow this dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people would respond, well, you can go on a mission with your husband someday. Mm-hmm. And I just, for some reason, I couldn't say no, even though I didn't want to get married. I felt like I didn't have the, as a young, good Mormon girl, I feel like I couldn't just say, that's not what I want. I'm making a different choice. Yeah. But what I could say, put my stake in this ground and say, I have to do this thing first. So it allowed did, me did, some did, kind did of you ever life. say that you, uh, you felt inspired or that, you know, this was just something that you felt in your, like you're playing that, uh, inspiration right. card to, to, to give That's you a credence. Great point. You know, I don't think I ever relied on that for the Africa thing. Uh-huh. I, I did rely on that for like, I just don't feel right about it right now. Uh-huh. And so that, that I did get some legitimacy when I used that verbiage uh-huh. in regard to the marriage. But I still feel like no one trusted my ability to make that choice at 19. Right, right. They were trying to convince me otherwise. And the only way I could kind of say no was to be like, I have to do this thing first. It was kind of like a mission almost. Like it allowed me, like this is a good thing too, and it allowed me to do it. And what happened was I went to, and this is how naive I was, right? I went to, I met a professor at BYU, biochemistry professor from the University of Ghana. We became friends. He said, come on over. I um, sent him an email and was like, I'm coming to Ghana. I uh, got on a plane by myself at 20 um, leaving the country for the first time, you know, it was back in 2000 when I didn't even know if the internet worked. I didn't know if someone was going to be there to pick me up. Like it was a crazy situation, but what it did is it kind of plopped me this white Mormon raised in a traditional family, eight kids, CES dad. It just plopped me in the heart of Africa by myself. And it just forced me to kind of figure out life. And it was really hard. I'm sure a lot of young missionaries know how this feels. It was just major culture shock. I ate soap one day because I didn't know if it was bread or food or like, I just, I didn't know anything. Well, but, right? but mi- was, missionaries like walk into a, a pretty well-defined structure. <laughs> you true. were like way on your own. What, what, how, I, how, how long, how long were you there? And what six did, months, the first time wow. was six did, was, did, did you um, intend to be there for six months or did it just happen it was, that way? It was a four-month study abroad. Okay. So I was actually taking class at the University of Ghana and I yeah. extended. But those first couple of months, I got to tell you guys, I was a prissy, lots of makeup, hair done, wearing heels every day, Mormon BYU girl. Uh-huh. And was just plopped in Africa. I mean, I would, you know, my makeup would melt off. I'd try to blow dry my hair. There was no electricity. The toilet was literally a hole in the ground. I mean, my face was just my, you know, can you imagine the first night I fell asleep? um, I was scared to death. A gecko landed on my chest and crawled down my body. Mm -hmm. But I had, because he fell asleep on the ceiling and just kind of fell on me. But I had no idea what it was. So I spent the whole night like awake, like cuddled in the corner thinking what type of thing right. just landed on my body. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was just this crazy culture shock. But what it did is it taught me all of these almost survival skills to figure out life in this totally new culture. And I there was no space for a white Mormon girl. And so I had to just figure out my own identity and occupy the space. And what it did over the course of the six months was kind of allowed me to figure out who I was outside of the cultural script that I was given and had always followed. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm taking a little bit too long with this question, but it was enormously helpful for me to kind of understand this culture. So when I went back to my own culture, I could see what was cultural. 
um, in a way that you can't. And a lot of anthropologists explain culture to undergraduates as, you know, fish don't understand that they're in water because that's all they've ever known. They can't see it. And same with us. Like we cannot recognize what aspects of our life, what decisions, what type of behavior we're experiencing and perpetuating. We don't see that as culture until we're like forced to step in a totally new place and then we can come back and kind of understand that. So that was kind of the life-changing moment was to recognize what parts of my life were um, cultural and to come back and kind of be aware of that. You know, that that raises an interesting question that I hadn't really anticipated, but this is one that's been on my mind, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years the separation between church and culture or the separation between the gospel and culture. And people, I, I remember people used to talk about this. And, and even in, in kind of early days when I was starting to question the church, that was, that was like this ready-made division that I could put something in that, okay, I, I want to believe it. I want to cherish it. I'm putting it in the gospel box. That's part of the gospel. Okay. Or if it's right. something that makes me crazy, I'm going to put that in the culture box. And it, it, it took me a long time for for that culture box to widen until it basically subsumed the the gospel. You know that the gospel was also part of the culture is, right. is where where I eventually went with it. But I don't, I don't know if if any of you guys have an experience with well, that church and culture. We did that. We did that episode on Pullman. That's what that yeah, makes me think it does. of. Is yeah, the, we did talk, talk about that a little he, bit. Yeah, I think maybe he used that same kind of an approach where. You know the the parts of the gospel were the the unchanging the you know the, the things that were on a higher plane and basically anything that was negative probably could have I think probably could have been characterized by him as as cultural practices yeah, the thing, or something the things but, that could be changed in and uh, right like his talk yeah exactly yeah right. the cultural yeah. stuff seems to be open and fair to criticize um, but the the gospel stuff can't so right. i always hear people saying uh well well that's that's just the culture that's not the that's not the doctrine or that's not the church that's the culture yeah. and it's it, i don't know so i i'd be so I, what i'm hearing you say chelsea is that your experience that that first six months that you were in ghana it it gave you some emotional distance that when you came back you were able to see the things that had just been second nature to you and go oh this is this is a part of U.S. culture or Utah culture or Mormon culture. You could start to see that, but you know now you talk about scripts. You know I was living this right. script. I don't. You probably didn't have it to that degree at that point, but you were able to no, no, to no. start seeing a separation between life just is life and oh this is this is manufactured. This is created. Right. Yeah. Right, and I think that anyone I've met who has truly understood another person from a different culture and understood their passions and interests and lifestyle. It's very hard for you to delegitimize de- their life experiences. Just, yeah, you know, right. um, and so it forces you to have more of an open mind. I always, you know, tell my students, go study abroad, go live in another country for a long period of time. It's the greatest thing you can do to open your mind, um, in a way that allows you to see difference. And I think as a Mormon as Mormons, we tend to be isolated, right, in our bubble. We think the world is one way, and until we really experience it a different way, it's hard for us to be as um, just understanding, right? Yeah. So 
what specifically what were some of the things that were most eye opening to you in in those first six months or maybe in your time in Ghana? Like, what are some of the things that that would have really stood out to you? Yeah, and and or when you got back from that, <laughs> that that's, right. that's what I'm interested. In, but but yeah, go ahead. the reverse culture shock was tough. Yeah. Um, I remember getting picked up from Africa after like, you know, I mean a year, you know, going to the bathroom in a hole and like bathing out of a bucket and like my father picking me up and us driving home and him talking about the girl in the ward that just made cheerleader camp and like these mundane things. And I remember being kind of a, and I, and I talk about myself harshly, but this is the experience, right? I was so naive. And I remember saying to him like, there's more money. And he's a seminar teacher, right? We had no money. But I remember saying, there's more money in your pocket than some of these people I lived with have for a year. Like, why are we talking about someone going to cheerleader camp, right? Or a friend would talk about, you know, being upset about some stupid thing. Like she didn't get a car that she wanted or the clothes that she wanted. And I just couldn't, that reverse culture shock was tough. I remember just being like, seriously, people are dying. Why do you care about that? Now, I don't think that way anymore. Again, that was a naive kind of like, I'm going to go save Africa. Oh wait, what does a 20 year old white person know anything about Africa? Right? How naive and stupid. And then vice versa, coming home and realizing just, I mean, these are all experiences you guys probably have. This is probably editable. Um, but just kind of growing up and realizing. Back to your earlier question, what was the greatest thing you learned? It wasn't in the first six months. I actually have always kept quite a separation between my religious life and my academic life. So my academic life, I study um, basically the evolution and elicitation of placebo effects. Or in other words, how we are able to elicit a physiological response from another human being with nothing more than a psychological or social trigger. Now, that's what I study. And in my Mormon life, it's always been quite separate. How? So the most- how? how do you do that? Because <laughs> to me, like when I, when I got into graduate school and I started studying folklore, which is, is maybe a, a little more narrowly focused uh, than uh, – it's probably a part of, of cultural anthropology, but it's more on the uh, artifact side probably. Um, and, and I couldn't help but go, okay, let's, let's take my experience as a Mormon. Let's take – Everything that I experienced as a missionary, all these stories that I heard as a missionary, and uh, put it under the microscope. How do you how do you separate that from your your academic life? I don't know. I think at the beginning I was embarrassed. I, I hate to say that. I feel like maybe my colleagues or my professors wouldn't think I'm as rigorous of a student or as good as an anthropologist yeah. if they thought I was um, committed to a particular worldview. Um, and at the beginning, it really was quite separate. I mean, I'm talking at a, at a really low level, you know, physiological endogenous mechanisms, la, 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 la. Like, I mean, it was a very proximate level, um, analysis. Now what changed that was beginning to break apart the Shante religion that I was studying. Mm-hmm. So I would go to a traditional healing ceremony. They're three or four hours long. I would watch the whole process, the spirit possession, the animal sacrifice, etc. Well, one time, the animal sacrifice, they um, kill animals, uh, you know, dependent on the type of 
ritual they want to do. Um, one of them was an answer to a question. Now, if they, you can use an egg and drop the egg, and if it's up or down is yes or no, right? You could use a cola nut. At this particular case, they used a chicken. So the chicken flops, then the answer is yes. If the chicken just dies without any movement, the answer is no. So they killed one chicken. What, it was what, kind what, of in- what are the, what, what's an example of some of the questions they would ask for this? Okay, so this particular case with the chicken, this guy wanted to start a business. And he wanted to know if the business would be successful, if he should, like, invest his money in this business. Mm-hmm. So he goes to a traditional priest, and he's kind of, we should ask the gods. So let's ask the gods. So we sacrifice the chicken, and it's indeterminate. So they sacrifice another one. And the answer is yeah, uh, no, actually. The answer was no. So I thought that would be the end of it. So they decide to sacrifice another chicken. And the answer is yes. And I st- kind of stop the ceremony, not really stop the ceremony, but I kind of go and ask the healer and ask the guy. I said, well, you know, if you just keep killing chickens till you get the answer you want, like, isn't that you just determining the answer you want, right? It was kind of, I did it in a very polite manner, but it was still kind of um, a little bit of an ethnocentric perspective. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of like, and their answer was so clear. It wasn't offen- offense at all. They said, well, we can never trick the gods. If the answer is no, the chicken will always lie flat. So, I mean, that was kind of the discussion we had. And as I was writing that up that night, I thought about, well, that's kind of silly. That's kind of illogical, right? Even though I wouldn't say that out loud. Mm -hmm. And something hit me in that moment. We would call that the spirit. But maybe, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just logic. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that out. But what hit me was how many of my prayers have been answered? If I logically wrote them out on a piece of paper and on one list I had all of the prayers I've ever offered and the ones that have been answered in another list and in another list the ones that have not been answered, which column would be longest? And it made me realize I'm doing the same thing. If I don't get an answer I want, I keep praying. You keep killing chickens. Right. And I keep saying, oh, well, God doesn't want to answer. I mean, we have so many quotes from Holland and other prophets of, well, a, a non-answer is an answer. Right. It's just wait. Right. So we have all these ways to rationalize around the idea that knock and it shall be answered. But if we're truly rational beings, which I don't believe we are, but if we were, then all my answers should be yes, or there should be a majority of yeses in order to be a rational believing member. And so it really hit home. And this is when I began to like you know, infuse my Mormonism with my, my, my profession. But it's this idea that they may be sacrificing chickens, but our approach to our religion is similar. Yeah. So, so I, I, I want to back up a little bit in your narrative. So this wasn't during your first six months in Ghana. This is, this is during a later time and you had the degree or were pursuing the degree in cultural anthropology, but, but then at some point, you were you were studying and you realized, hey, I'm talking past my informants here. You know, I right. I'm seeing what they're doing, but I'm not really le- legitimizing the results of these faith healings. And, and you wanted to be able to do that because you were talking about what what was it the how how it helps cohesiveness in their society. But they were saying, no, this actually heals somebody's body. Is that is right. that right? Right. Exactly right. So what I began to discover was like people in my position, anthropologists would go study religions and they'd be like, well, witchcraft is bogus. Right. But my people that I study believe in witchcraft. Yeah. You know, from the premise was we think that this practice is illogical. We think that it doesn't exist. We don't think witches are, you know, actually, you know, um, possible. 
but let's study these people and why they think it's important. So, and I just felt like so they as a Mormon... They wouldn't start from a completely unbiased point of view and just let the evidence lead them where it would? Not necessarily. Huh. I mean, Westerners have a hard time saying... <laughs> I see where you're going, Glenn. I, 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 I that's, see where right. you're going That's at you, that. Scott. No, right. Glenn, Glenn's tying in something from our previous our discussion okay. the other night about, about Egyptologists, right. non-Mormon Egyptologists, and what their... their um, Kind of their null hypothesis would be in regards to the the Book of Abraham's uh, translation, but right. um, yeah. A- any, anyway, I, okay. I interrupted your your narrative no, to to fine. make a little dig at Scott. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think all Westerners have this problem, right? We don't believe in witchcraft. Yeah, we don't believe in witches. Therefore, when we come to a society that believes in that, we just think it's stupid and well, that can, you know and I, the prep- I, I think it even goes to the question that i asked you about dualism or materialism you know that, right. that there's already a bias i think the majority of the bias is going towards a materialist view so anything that might be dualist or pluralist it, right off the bat is going to be rejected unless there's overwhelming evidence to, right. to the yeah, contrary when you Chelsea, say witch what are you, what are you talking about when you say a witch or witchcraft Okay, witchcraft is a ubiquitous factor in most of West, most of Africa in general, but particularly West Africa. It's the belief that there are malevolent forces in the world, that you can harness those malevolent forces to cause harm to someone else. Now, we have an enormous history of witchcraft in Europe. We have it all across Africa. We have it all across the world, actually. Um, but what we began to see in the European case study is throughout our history, people kind of... Um, losing a belief. I mean, witchcraft is strong. People have died of this. People are accused of witchcraft and are hung. I mean, we see this in every society across the planet. But what we see over time is European ancestors kind of giving up a belief in witchcraft and then looking down upon those that continue to have it. While at the same time embracing uh, Satanism and kind of calling it something different through their religion. Right. So it's it's manifested in a different form for the Europeans. It's just not that. See, now right. I, I I remember reading a book called Witchcraft Among the Azandi and like right. I don't know if this is still in vogue or not, but but he and this is E Evans Pritchard, is that right? Uh-huh. And and mm-hmm. he talked about their belief in witchcraft as being a very material thing to the point right. where there was this this stuff called I think it was black mangoo or something like that that is actually inside of their gut right. that they can find right. as like this dark tar substance yes. that yep that's how you know that they're they are a witch or they've been cursed by a witch or I, th- I think it's if they they are a witch themselves right right and there there's to this day there's practices where you can kind of quote unquote pull out the witchcraft out of someone and yeah. it's a physical substance. There's, a, and I try to explain it to, so even E.E. E. Evans Pritchard, he is writing the, about the Azande and he says the first sentence of his book is, the Azande believe, yeah. dot, dot, dot. Yeah. So, so he didn't believe. Right. He didn't think it was a real thing. But let's qualify and quantify what this person believes. And so that's how we've approached witchcraft in the past. And the postmodern yeah. kind of view is that's quite ethnocentric. Right. So to assume well, that it's not fact is presuming something that negates your informant. Didn't, but didn't he but, also, but, like, he, he got in with some of the, the shamans and he saw some of the tricks that they did and exposed them? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and I okay, could do the so, same thing, yeah. right? I could tell you the exact 
practice of how it's working, how you pull the witchcraft out of someone. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't negate the fact that fundamentally the lived experience of being West African is a belief that there are malevolent spirits. And if I hate, let's say I hate, no offense, Glenn, yeah. but let's say I hate Glenn yeah. and I like think, oh man, I wish something really bad were to happen to him. Ow, ow. Then <laughs> this is where voodoo actually comes from. And like voodoo dolls, it comes from West Africa. But the idea being, if I'm American and I say that, I think, you know, stick and stones will hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. I don't think my words are efficacious in causing anything in the cosmos to transpire. If I'm West African and something bad happens to Glenn, I actually feel guilty. I feel like my hatred or my malevolent thoughts physically changed Glenn's world so that he got hurt. And so we can make sense of witchcraft in a way that we kind of explain it in our worldview or our paradigm versus their paradigm. We may use different words, but it's this idea that social interactions between individuals can have an effect. And that's what I try to bring my research down to, which is even in America, we believe social interactions between individuals can have a really big effect. Think about bullying and suicide. And yet we don't actually talk about them as having an effect, and people in West Africa do. So, okay, let me let me dig into this a little bit because I feel like you're trying to, or maybe you are, trying to avoid making any kind of normative judgments about a practice like pulling you know the witchcraft out of somebody goo yeah. out of well not necessarily witchcraft's too broad okay because because as as you're explaining it maybe there's a difference I, i'm wondering in your in your um in your work is there a difference in how you would approach something or how you would characterize something like say uh, a, a physical claim like there's this black goo that comes out of a person which Obviously, there. I mean, maybe obviously is not the right word, but there's not. I mean, we can demonstrably prove that there's not. Is that any different than something like what you said about um, having malevolent thoughts about someone else that maybe could have an effect or something? I mean, I see where you're going in terms of bullying and that sort of thing, and I think we're going to get into the placebo effect argument. I'm just wondering here: are there ever times when? given your perspective that you're comfortable saying, make any kind of normative judgment that like, okay, this practice is, is, is wrong or is incorrect. Cause I would have a hard time sitting there with a group of people and maybe this is just my bias, my ethnocentricity, but I would have a hard time sitting through something like that where they were doing what I would call, you know, uh, like, like that kind of black magic, just hocus pocus, kind of thing where they're making something up that's a physical claim in the real world. Right. That's a brilliant question. And that's, in fact, a question I've grappled with for years. I've sat through ceremonies that I did not feel good about. I did not feel right about. I thought that there was quackery, right? And I've had to deal with that over the years. The way that I would describe that is I've seen someone pull a millipede out of a woman's body and say, this is the witchcraft in her. I've talked to that same girl, she was a 14-year-old, who wrote a letter of confession that she was in, in fact a witch. And I, would, I remember just like pulling my hair out saying, you're 14 years old, like you don't know what you're saying. And she got punished and beaten and it was a terrible situation because she confessed to witchcraft. And I saw how once her family had physical proof in the form of this millipede, 
It was the first time she was allowed back home with her family. And so let me just explain that a little bit and then explain how I deal with it. So for me, I have to say that this witchcraft is real or else I feel like it's being disingenuous to the lived experience of the people I work with. What do you um, mean? Hold on, hold on. What do you mean by real? What do you mean it's real? Because you, you say lived experience. She's becoming an Ashanti whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, it's another, it's another reference. reference but I mean, she's saying yeah. from, from the point of view of the people that she's right. studying, that the experience of their life is that yes. this is real. So, so Scott, yes. you're asking for like well, this, sure. no, this normative. I, and she's, she's yeah. working towards it. So okay. right. well, I have no, right. I, I just wanted to clarify when you say real, you don't necessarily mean in a metaphysical sense that to them it is. Well, okay. I, yeah. I don't mean from any perspective like ours right. or theirs, <laughs> but, but you but do, because if, if you're know, saying, I mean, if, I you're mean, saying from a, a, if you're saying that it's not real, then you're discounting theirs. No, wrong. I I'm saying, I'm saying, let's say you had a continuous CT or x-ray scan of the entire room and a robot making a determination of whether or not the millipede came out of her stomach. Okay. So not my Western bias that obviously it didn't. No, but a CT scan is a Western bias. Whoa. Okay. Let me how, explain that. How is, so, okay. Yeah. I, yeah I do need to explain that. Okay. Let me step in for a minute and try to be a Chelsea whisperer because I think the explanation that follows gives us all the pieces that we need to understand what she means, but maybe it doesn't quite connect them as clearly as it could. So here it goes. Scott is willing to say that if I objectively measure by using robots or a CAT scan that a millipede was not actually pulled out of this girl's body, even though the faith healer said that it was, then we have evidence of deception and fraud and therefore, this whole de-witchifying experience is not real. Chelsea, on the other hand, would agree, sure, the millipede was never actually in her body. There's some sleight of hand going on. However, what's the impact of this sleight of hand? Because the people seeing this ceremony actually believe that witchcraft is real. And they believe that this girl was a witch and the extraction of a millipede, regardless of that sleight of hand, reinforces their belief. And that belief impacts the family in a real, measurable way. They use it to forgive the girl of whatever crimes they thought she'd committed, and they welcome her back into her family, fresh, new, and de-witchified. So to them, this is real, and the impact of the ceremony has real, measurable results. Therefore, you can't just stop after the CAT scan result and diagnose the situation as not real. That would be using a Western bias and not looking at it through their eyes. It was real to them because they believed it was real. And most importantly, the impact on their lives was a real impact. Right, Chelsea? I think so. All right, let's go back and see what she has to say. I'm a relativist. I'm an Einstonian relativist with behavioral science, which is you, the efficacy of how witchcraft work is unconnected to the absolute truth claims that witchcraft exists. So... My people will be physiologically altered by witch, witchcraft kind of, you know, interactions, cursings, or healings, regardless of whether or not I say that it exists as a real thing. So if we have an efficacy, if it has a real effect, then it's a real thing. It might not okay. be a so material, when you say, yeah. material, So when you say it's real, you're, 
you mean you mean in terms of the effect on the person? So yes. So, so this is inextricably Again. intertwined with the placebo effect. Yes, then. that's what I'm. That's what I'm getting at. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So when I talk to people about Mormonism, they might say there's this truth claim: God has to exist. Joseph Smith must have seen God in Jesus Christ. He must have had the the, the golden plates, and regardless of whether or not that's true, and I don't think that we have the scientific, you know, methodologies to, you know, unequivocally unequivocally, how do I say that word? Unequivocally um, ascertain if that was true or not. Um, that still, that belief still has a real effect on the people who believe in it to the point of physical alteration, material alteration, changing their lifestyle, determining their decisions. And I, I agree with that hundred percent. Right. And I think what happens in our Western bias is the only things that are quote-unquote real are those that we can pick up in a CT scan. We become so positivist, but in a, in, in a very interesting way, we've privileged cognitive, you know, logical consistency. We've privileged uh, materiality so, so much that we negate anything that happens not beyond those means. So I work with doctors every single day in the placebo effect, in placebo trials, that see on a regular basis that placebo effects are enormously efficacious and enormously powerful, but we can't necessarily find the substance, right? It's witchcraft. We can't find it in a CT scan, but we see the effect. And so we discount it. But I'm saying to them, and again, just like I would to, to people who are against witchcraft, there's a real effect there. Something is happening. The body is physically changing. You can't discount that just because you don't like the way in which we're used to measuring things. Right. So I'm really interested in this because uh, being here in a community where I live in a community with a lot of Mormons, there's a lot of people who sell um, uh, essential oils. Um, so I think maybe you could have done your you saved yourself a flight and just just studied <laughs> Mormons selling DoTerra. Um, but how would you? I, I mean, how, how do you? Well, let me ask you this: uh, Is there a difference in how the placebo effects, uh, the placebo effect, um, well impacts Scott, one group of people versus another group of people? Can, but, what I'm saying is, if you wait, oh, but, what, but, but, what, but Hank, what, I want to hear. What, I want to hear about this girl that had the millipede pulled out of her. All right. So that, so. <laughs> Scott, let's get to the placebo effect in a minute because I have to okay. define that first because people actually don't don't have the right definition in their heads most often. Okay. So we'll get to that next. All right. Those of us, those of us that went to college think we do. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> okay. So Glenn, I, think, so Glenn, I think I understand the placebo effect. So I, so Glenn, but edit, I want, edit out the aside so we'll go back to I'll the middle edit what girl. the hell I want to edit. You, uh, <laughs> I, I, I want to hear so, – so this, this girl was welcomed back into her family because of, of the belief that she had been afflicted by witchcraft but now it was removed. And so right. she went through this healing experience. And it wasn't all healing. Okay. I mean, I watched her be beaten and walked out of the ritual. It was so painful for me to watch something. I thought it was wrong. I got in right. trouble, actually. The healer called me over and got mad at me for walking out. And I said, I can't watch a little girl be beaten with a rubber whip. It, it was so difficult, the scenario. And it really tested my boundaries of, I can say I'm a relativist. I can right. say I'm a cultural relativist. Yeah. But to be confronted with a scenario in which a 14-year-old girl is being beaten, how relativist am I? Um, and the whole, and I write this up in the kind of, um, kind of this chapter that talks about, um, 
I went home and was so upset by this little girl being beaten. And I had one of my neighbors come over and he's like, I don't understand. He said, how can you fear a beating when lives are at stake? And it really hit me that I think the beating is problematic because I don't believe in the witchcraft. Whereas everyone else believes in the witchcraft. So what's a beating? What's a beating if witchcraft's going to kill a bunch of people? Let's get rid of the witchcraft. And so what? It's one beating. It's better scenario. Um, so it just really taught me this hard, hard lesson of that I, you know, belief has real consequences for me to believe or not believe, for her to believe, for her family to believe. It's not an ephemeral, abstract thing. That it has so, real consequences. So I want to push. I want to push back here just a little bit, uh, and and. And and the way I want to push back is I I, I know that you advocate for uh, change as it pertains to gender roles in religion and, and the Mormon Church. So, but isn't that just the same normative judgment? Why not just ap- ap- apply that to religion and the way that religion and the Mormon Church deals with gender roles and feminism? Is that's their belief? That's their experience and the way they view uh, what is most valuable and. Uh, and and is most worthy specific gender roles that uh, do create may create an imbalance from your perspective, but isn't that just a normative judgment that the same that Scott's doing to this to this millipede? What's how do you distinguish that? It's a really good question. Such a good question. So for me, what it comes down to is I'm an insider. I'm a cultural Mormon. I'm a, I'm an insider. These are my people. I was hurt by gender inequality. I have hundreds of friends, thousands of friends that have been hurt by gender inequality. So I can fight for that because these are my people. Um, would I go to, you know, Sudan and tell people to stop FGM, feminine genital mutilation? Not really. I think that that's quite ethnocentric for me to show up. Do I want women who are against feminine genital mutilation, who are Sudanese, to go back or to, to come from Sudan and fight it from the inside? Yes, I do. So I think as a cultural insider, that's how change happens. We see this throughout all time and throughout across all cultures, that change occurs in a cultural situation from insiders you know, facilitating and progressing that change. So I'm absolutely Except some okay would, with some that. Some would say that, yeah, no, and, that's, and, I, and I do find that interesting. Um, but some would say that a lot of the cultural change within the church has happened because of external pressure, because um, of impact, you know, blacks in the priesthood, because Stanford wasn't going to play BYU in athletics. These types right. of things had, right. had real uh, – so external forces do also um, right. ha- have real impact. So there's value in having external um, – I guess these these normative judgments saying this is right, this is wrong, injecting them on right. other people. So there really is value in doing that as well. What, what what do you think of that? Well, it's both because you have to look at the idea. It depends. You know, here we go back to relativity, which is an anthropo- anthropologist motto. Because think about it. You know, America isn't external. Mormonism has always been inextricably connected to American culture and American beliefs and Puritan backgrounds. I mean, that's what we're rooted in. So, uh, you know, yes, it's external to the Mormon church, but all of the things that America was dealing with in regard to race relationships were affecting the church the whole way throughout our entire history. So 
I wouldn't necessarily think of American culture as external as it would be some Westerner going to Sudan and telling them to change their behavior. For example, there's other cultures in Africa that don't do FGM, and they can have an effect on local cultures around them that a white Western outsider can't. So there's degrees of relativity. American culture has, has and always will completely, you know, change Mormon culture. Let's look at the fact that we used to be polyamorous and socialist and that we're now enormously corporate and capitalist. I mean, you know, American culture is imprinted on Mormonism very heavily. I'm really surprised. Uh, maybe I shouldn't be. I don't know. I, I, I'm just kind of surprised at how you, how you said that. Like, I don't understand why a Sudanese woman or a West African anyone or an American white person, like, why do they have why do they have different claims on on how much they could or or how much um maybe they should be involved in another culture advocating for or against a practice like genital mutilation well let me ask you guys a question and this might be a little bold and and you know maybe a little crass but let's see how it goes um would how many of you are circumcised i am ho yeah hey so all three of you are circumcised. Uh-huh. Part of your foreskin was removed at birth because of a culture and religious practice. It was foreskin that actually gives you greater sensitivity. It was a part of your body that was taken from you. And yet no one has a problem with this. I do. Well, I mean, <laughs> traditionally, people aren't really upset about male circumcision in the same way they are about female circumcision. But, now, but I that's just well, I don't... so aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> that's because no, our culture so, has assumed that that's what's aesthetically pleasing in the north, right? right? I don't. See, I kind of gave you a softball there. <laughs> I think it. I think. Um, I think you make a good point, but I also think it's not uh, apples to apples, so well, to speak. Well, let me explain. So, I, in my one hundred and one class, I kind of you have to understand female circumcision. So that's why I use the two two terms: female circumcision versus FGM. It's a continuum. So there is female circumcision done in cultures that is not even as bad as a male circumcision. It's actually less, you know, painful. It, it requires less recovery. There's not as great uh, cost for the rest of your life. You know, you don't lose certain sensitivity for the rest of your life. So there is female circumcision that's not terribly bad. In fact, it's better than male circumcision. And then you go all the way along the spectrum and there's mediate, there's intermediaries of female circumcision where, you know, you take out the outer labia, you take out the inner labia, you take out the clit. Like there, there's actual continuum based, um, types of female circumcision all the way up the spectrum to the point where, you know, you're sewing up the entire vaginal opening, um, getting rid of the clitoris, taking out all the outer and inner labia, that this becomes an enormous health problem. I mean, women can't give birth because of the scar tissue that develops. So, um, that, you know, have sex and menstruate through scar tissue. So there's enormous problems on the other spectrum. But if we get down to the left-hand spectrum of female circumcision, you know, it's, it's better than male circumcision. So it's hard. But isn't that making a judgment, though, that you're saying that you don't want to make? Like you're saying you're comparing how relatively bad they are, but doesn't isn't that exactly what you're trying to avoid? Because you're saying, well, I would never go there and say that they shouldn't do something. And, and I don't really care where it's at on the spectrum. Right. I'm just I'm just wondering, like, why is a white person or a an American like why is there a gradation of of how much influence somebody should have over over an issue like that? 
I mean, I understand in terms of effectiveness, like a, an insider might be more effective, but, but why, would it, why would it be wrong? Like, I wouldn't think it would be wrong for an atheist to disabuse Mormons of, can, you know, can I take empirical a, claims that are wrong. Can I take a stab at the answer? Sure. My, my, my guess and and I don't really know exactly where I, f- I fall on this, but is that an an insider is going to have a, a an informed insider is going to have a greater sensitivity to the domino effect and how one one piece affects another piece, whereas somebody who's an outsider doesn't really understand how this fits with every, all the other moving pieces of their culture. Eh. Eh. That's a good point. I mean, it, these are topics as a feminist and a feminist activist that are enormously problematic for me. Because as a feminist activist, I want to do everything I can in any culture to, like, greater the stance of women in the world. But as an anthropologist, I'm a moral relativist. So I can't go into a culture and say, what you're doing is bad. So let's link this back to the girl, the 14-year-old witch. I wanted to stop the ceremony. As she's being beaten, and I'm watching... I wanted to stand up, walk into the middle of the shrine, and say, stop beating her. I can use my body and my privilege to kind of stop the beating of this girl. But I also felt like, you know, this has been practiced for thousands of years before me. It'll be practiced for thousands of years afterwards. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm not a good anthropologist. And so I just walked away. The fascinating scenario was, she came back and begged me with tears in her eyes, please don't, please don't leave because he said he won't beat me ever again if you're around. Okay? So I always was around this girl. He wouldn't beat her when I was around. Next time her family showed up, this is when the millipede came out. She came and said, please leave. There's tears in her eyes again. If you do not leave, he won't beat me, and I'll never be able to return to my family again. So... I know maybe this is becoming kind of a long way of explaining, but I had to learn the hard way that my understanding of what was right or wrong would have stopped the ceremony for the day, but I would have never gotten this woman the personhood she needed to be accepted back into her family. And me kind of sitting back and watching her be beaten or leaving the ceremony so she could be beaten actually was the better option for her for her cultural paradigm. Yeah, and I I think that makes a lot of sense, and I get that in terms of you're there, you're affecting the situation, what's going to be better or worse? I guess I just, the way you describe it as being a, a moral relativist, I couldn't, I, I have a hard time with that making any kind of moral equivalency with having any kind of scenario in which that would be morally acceptable to, to beat a girl for, well, that's, for something like that. That's the part I, I don't That's get. sort of what I, what I was reaching for, talking about like the domino effect, that there are, are things that she values, that this 14-year-old girl values above being beaten, like, like having the relationship with her family. So she'll accept the beating in order to have the relationship with her family, whereas uh, Chelsea's response would kind of deprive her of that. I'm wondering if we can take that example and do the inverse for like the ordained women movement in Mormon culture from an insider. I mean, is there is there some kind of an equivalent where you're putting uh, a, a woman's relationship with her family in peril because she sets up a profile on ordained women and is fighting the culture and she's essentially stopping the beating um, and they're relationships that are being strained because of that, but it's okay because you're an insider in any sense. Is, is, 
Could we, mm-hmm. could we make that kind of a comparison? That's a great comparison, actually. Let's talk about that. First, I just want to say one thing about um, kind of making the comparison with FGM and culture and insiders, etc. What people don't really realize is the cultural weight of not doing female circumcision. So, um, for example, there's women who say, I have to circumcise my daughter or she's unmarriageable in our society. It's like a Mormon man that doesn't go on a mission. You know, this is changing as our culture shifts. But let's think about when you were younger, let's say you didn't go on a mission. Your prospects for marriage are much lower. You, you, um, you are basically putting a sign on your back in the middle of your culture that says that you're less than everyone else. Now, this is an enormously problematic thing. Kids struggle with this every day in our own culture. And some go on missions just so they don't have the baggage and the shame of not doing that. Uh, They're willing to give up two years of their lives just so that they have personhood in their culture. So I think it's hard for us to understand a cultural practice like FGM until we realize that it has the same significance as, you know, in the Mormon church of going on a mission or getting married in the temple. There's enormous cultural weight on that to the point of altering all of your behavior, even painful behavior, in order to accomplish that thing that makes us valuable in our society. Um, And I feel like most outsiders don't understand the weight of that. And I think you've said this before to the degree um, in order to effectively, you know, make changes that aren't belittling of that weight. Yep. Um, Down to ordained women. We actually have a lot of cases of women whose families have disowned them. We have a case of someone on the board, actually, whose parents have been horrible, have written her letters, have said she couldn't be at the deathbed of her grandmother, who have, you know, said that she's leading the family astray and is not welcome in their home. I mean, we have terrible cases. I get, you know, kind of hate letters from aunts and grandmas and family members all the time. I mean, you're right. There is an element of um, stopping, quote unquote, stopping the beating that we're willing to do, but what we give up is being accepted into the social circle and having any sort of social capital. And, and so as an, as an insider where you understand the risks, it's almost like uh, Martin Luther King social disobedience. You know, we understand the, the, the risks that we're taking. We'll pay the consequences for it, but this is an important thing to take a stand on. And, it's like an informed consent. Yeah, yeah, Correct. yeah. As, as, an, as an insider, because you're an informed insider, whereas if, if you're messing around with a culture that's not your own, you don't really know what, uh, the, the impact uh, of it if you're doing more harm or, or uh, good. Well, and there's an element of effect, right? And someone brought this up where, you know, if an outsider came to Temple Square and was like, women aren't equal, give women the priesthood. I mean, the amount of coverage that would have, the amount of effect it would have, you know, it would not have had near the same effect as polite Mormon insiders lining up and asking our leaders to pray about this issue. So... I mean, there is the level of effect. And what we find, you know, throughout time and across cultures is that the people that have the most effect in causing change are the insiders. Yeah. So, so let's, let's, let's go back to your experience in, in Ghana and uh, talk about the, the difference in approach a- after you went back for your second degree in biological anthropology. Because I, I think that kind of gets towards 
Scott's question of how effective w- were some of these treatments or, or, or faith right. healings in making a physiological change on the body, even if you've got a CAT scan that says this millipede did not come from inside of this girl's body. Right. So, right. so, so what, what, what's the difference between biological anthropology and cultural anthropology? And uh, how, how did that help you address these questions? So I um, started out with cultural anthropology. We talked about that. I was interviewing these healers. And for example, my first analysis of this witchcraft case study was, you know, her belief in witchcraft and the process, the ritual process allowed her to be fully integrated back into her family after being forgiven and gave her full personhood, right? That was my first analysis. Um, What I realized when talking to the Ashante, though, was they were saying things like, well, no, Real witchcraft came out of her. Yeah. Right. Or um, now she's not, now she can't cause harm to another human being. A real causative agent was taken. Um, almost like the priesthood, we could argue, a priesthood blessing. Like the priesthood was taken from her, the ability to affect change, the ability to change someone's physical state was taken from this woman. In a similar case, you know, someone's rash went away. And I, and I said, well, that's, you know, because she feels more social support and she has less stress and that's why she feels better. And then, you know, her rash went away. No, the healers would say, I was able to enact a biochemical response in her body. Now, I'm using my words for their statement, but I was able to actually heal her body. So I went back and had to do a ton of research in biological anthropology and kind of getting at the intersection between biology and culture. So a biological anthropology studies, it's a little bit different than culture. Instead of religious systems, cultural systems, they study the human body and how it's developed over time. So there's an enormous evolutionary aspect to it. Why did our body develop the way it has and how is it currently affected by its environment? So studying biological anthropology allowed me to go back into the field with an enormously um, different paradigm and approach these questions from a different way. So the question I had when I went back into the field after the second degree was, why did our bodies evolve in such a way that they're manipulable, that they're susceptible to social and psychological triggers? That's a very unique thing that humans have. And it doesn't seem enormously adaptive. So why would they have evolved that way? And then the second question is, how? How does a social thing or a ritual process affect a physiological state? So those were kind of the two questions I went back into the field. So let let me ask you a question about these faith healers. Um, You know, and and going back to the example that you gave of the rash, it, my, my sense, and again, it was a long time ago that I read witchcraft among the Azande that, that I read that Pritchard book. But my sense was that he was presenting some of these faith healers as, um, knowing charlatans that they knew what they were doing was fake, but they it, it it gave them some kind of elevated status among the group, and so they they continued to do it. But but what I what I think I'm hearing from you is that they're genuine believers in what they're doing, even if they know that there's a, a trick to making it look like a millipede's coming out of their body. They really believe that that's what they have to do in order to. Uh, remove the, the, the witchcraft or that uh, I guess it, it's less cynical and, and more genuine. Right. Um, right. In that and let me, 
let me bring that around to something that will make sense to all of you and all our listeners. In, I think it was 2010 in a New York Times article, they pulled, you know, most physicians in America, they pulled a, you know, a random survey sample of physicians in America. And over 50% of U.S. trained medical doctors said they regularly use placebos. Our doctors regularly will give someone a saline injection or will give someone a treatment or a pill that they know is really nothing, but they'd rather have their patient go home with something than nothing at all. And so my whole point in all of this research is to kind of show, just like I did with Mormonism and prayer, that what we think is bizarre in this other cultural context, we actually practice ourselves in a regular you know, way. We just kind of call it something else. And I saw this in the field as well. I saw lots of Ashante. I also did research, not just in the traditional healers, but in the medical clinics and facilities in Africa. And I talked to these healers and I would see, I had a, I had a really good friend who was an eye doctor and he would tell me, I could send home my patient with advanced glaucoma and I could tell her there's nothing I can do. It will never get better. And she will continually to feel depressed. It will get worse. You know, and he understood the physiology. Her stress will go up. There's nothing she can do. She's going to go into a depression. It will be a terrible situation. Why would I, as a doctor, do something that I know will cause harm to my patient? Or I can give her these, this little box of saline drops, and I can tell her, use these every day. It'll help you see a little bit clearer. Now, it's not going to solve the whole problem, but it will help. Now, she's going to go away, and every time she sees a little bit clearer, she's going to say, wow, these saline drops worked. And in fact, her vision will be clearer for longer than the patient I tell has no hope. And so even in that scenario, the prescription of a placebo or what we would call quackery or, or the, the whole pseudo healing that we're talking about has a real effect on the patient's, you know, positive treatment outcomes or negative treatment outcomes. And we see this in America all the time. Sure. And, and, uh, and I, I absolutely agree with that. The, where I wonder is, is some of these other, uh, using the same methodology, but where it maybe has a net, it's a net harm. Uh, and, and homeopathy is an example, I think, of where people are spending, um, many, 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 many uh, dollars, you know, a lot of money to something that, that is a placebo. And then that is both, you know, you're, you're making somebody rich, you're, you're enriching somebody else and you're spending money and sometimes foregoing what is a more effective treatment for cancers and these other things that go on. So, so in that case, we can have a judgment call saying, I'm at, I guess I'm asking, can we have a judgment call and say, that's bad, that's wrong, because it has a net harm? It's a good question. Um, what we tend to see in America, as well as in, in my, my field site in West Africa, is that people actually try biomedicine first. So if they have a gash or a cancer, let's say, they typically do go through the biomedical routes. They go to a you know biomedical doctor, they try to get it cured with uh, pharmacological pharmaceutical medication, you know, active medication, they try to go through these routes. What we tend to see in the U.S. and abroad is that when people turn to alternative practitioners, their case has not been adequately solved by the biomedical system. Now, these cases tend to be similar in certain veins, right? We don't see people going to homeopathy or nature, you know, naturopathy or alternative healers to cure malaria, 
We don't see people going to them for infectious diseases or broken arms. You know, we typically don't see people going to them for kind of straightforward diseases. What we typically see people going for is when biomedicine has failed them. So when their cancer has returned and the biomedical system didn't work or when chronic pain is unable to be explained by a doctor or when mental illness is unable to be solved by an active pharmaceutical. So people turn to these alternative remedies when they've tried this other stuff. And quite frankly, these alternative, here's the irony. The, these alternative remedies, placebo effects, and I have to define that at some point, they actually are more effective in these realms where things aren't straightforward. Because when things aren't straightforward, I can manipulate your expectations in a way for positive treatment that I can't do with an infectious disease. Yeah, I don't know if I accept your premise. I think too often people jump to um, pseudoscience, alternative medicines. And I I just love the line of uh, Tim Minton that says, you know what we call... Um, medicines, alternative medicine that's been proven to work, medicine. But you know, they go to chiropractors right away for... But, but uh, Matt, I, I think you're talking about two different groups of people. I think she's saying from her experience in Africa, these are the ones like they... No, I, I think, no, it's I think a she said question. America. Oh, you're saying right. America? Yeah, right. And I would, I would disagree. I, I do think you bring up a good point. There are people who jump to this, but I guess... My premise, let's go, let's take a step back from where you're arguing, where people are jumping to doTERRA before they've even gone to a biomedical doctor. And I think we need to take a step back. If we're talking in the American context, there's a reason why someone would trust, a, you know, essential oil over a doctor. Part of that is HMOs and insurance costs and medical malpractice. Part of that is the confidence in Western practice practitioners. You know, there are aspects of American medical system that has actually caused a, a misconfidence in our practitioners over the course of the last hundred years. So there are reasons why historically and culturally people would, uh, from the get-go, assume a position of alternative medicine. And that has more to do with the stance of medicine in America today um, than necessarily that they think, you know, that, that's more to do with the confidence in the biomedical system than anything else. So uh, see, I, and again, I, I just I disagree with your your premise there. I think it's it's because these others are promoted. You got the Doctor Oz's. You've got the the marketing that's behind them is 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 is, is kind of nice, and and people embrace them because it it sounds good and it sounds easy. So and I and I don't disagree that there are people where there is there's a lack of confidence, but uh, I. See, I disagree. There's nothing better marketed than the American biomedical system. If you understand the history of medicine in America, think about it. You know, 100 plus years ago, there was so many, there was medical pluralism in the U.S. People were giving tapeworms to people to lose weight. There was homeopathy. There was naturopathy. There was allopathy. There was tons of different ways to heal. There were the Chamberlain brothers. There were midwives. There was medical pluralism in America. What changed was we began to have an AMA. We began to have only allopathic biomedicine is acceptable and legal. If you practice any other kind of medicine, you can be liable by law. So we actually marketed this one system as an end-all, be-all. It's the greatest brand that we have in the U.S. 
And we so, actually got rid of these other types of practice. Now, now that these other types of practice are cropping up is not necessarily because they're really great marketing. Uh, Dr. Oz is a biomedical practitioner, right? But he has seen over the pushing years. Pushing alternative medicine. Right. But he has seen over the years that there are certain cases, especially with heart disease, diabetes. Think about our top killers in America. They're not infectious disease. They're not, you know, acute trauma. They are heart disease caused primarily by diet and stress. There's diabetes caused primarily by diet and stress and lifestyle, right? A lot of the things that are killing us today are not adequately treated in the biomedical system. They're actually better treated in these alternative medical systems. So, so I have, well, I take, I, I, that's, I reject, that's the part I really take issue reject with. Reject that so out of hand. The, the, let me tell you from what I've seen, uh, from Facebook, from people that I know, I have seen people actively discourage other people from ever going to a medical doctor. I've seen people who say, my kid had a fever of 104. Um, I figured out it was viral. And so I gave them, you know, lemon tree oil behind the ear and he was better in three hours. I'm teaching a seminar on how to treat your family with uh, essential oils next week. Come to my house. Like, like almost word for word, that kind of a thing in a Facebook post. Um, and I think a lot of these, well, I know a lot of these people and they're, they're, a lot of them are anti-vaxxers. So I think there's, I think there's a lot of normative statements or, or um, moral conclusions that we can draw and maybe should draw about people that are advocating for something that could harm other people in a medical sense compared to types of treatments that are objectively, statistically uh, going to help them more. Right. And if there's, for, for and if example, there's no... I can't on this... If there's no clinical advantage to a placebo or a, um, an essential oil compared to an actual... What, what could be an actual treatment or actual diagnosis, and I think if you just take you know, every case across the board, that's what you would find. I mean, you would, I'm not saying that there's never an effect of a placebo, but to just jump to an essential oil, you you can't ever say that that's across the board going to be more effective than going to a doctor. Right. Which is not what I claimed. So next person. (laughs) Uh, Well, so one of the things that I can embrace is this, uh, this idea of, for example, an example for me is uh, gluten allergies, and there's a big debate over that. But to me, if it makes the person feel better to not eat gluten or to eat gluten-free things, then then great. That seems to be the placebo effect you're um, you're talking about. Is there's no there, there's studies no, that not say there's actually, no no offense, but gluten is not a a placebo thing. No, 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 I'm talking about a gluten allergy versus a versus celiac disease. Right. My, my understanding is, is 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 either you have celiac disease um, or you do not. That there's no uh, there is no real physiological effect of gluten sensitivity, and that that's a form of uh, placebo effect. If people feel better or they feel that yeah, this is impacting my system when. Uh, and and they, they report that whether it's has zero gluten or some gluten or a bunch of gluten and they, they have that they report that um, which seems to demonstrate that that's uh, that's not having a physiological effect but they do think it does 
Is that that's you disagree with that or I disagree with that only because that's a bad you know no offense that's just a bad case study because gluten actually does have like a pathology there so not using gluten or using gluten has nothing to do with placebo like you can be totally non-allergic to gluten and feel differently using or not using so that's just not a great case study but I get I kind of get what you're saying I do want to do one clarification here which is you know. Let's understand placebos a little more. I'm actually, I be, you know, 100% scientist. I believe in vaccines. I think that biomedicine is the greatest thing we've, you know, come up with in the last 100 years. It saved millions of lives. It's, it's the most genius thing. I think the only hesitation I have is this idea that biomedicine can answer all of our problems. Because many of first world modern health problems stem from lifestyle and diet and environmental um, mismatches with the way that our brains and bodies evolved to the current climate we're living in. So taking a pill for cholesterol is actually kind of less effective for my long-term treatment for heart disease than altering my stress levels at work and figuring out a diet that lowers my cholesterol. But in a biomedical spectrum, you know, I can assign people to go exercise every day as a doctor and they might not. So I'll just assign them a pill. So men, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm 100% with you. I, when someone talks about doTERRA and essential oils in my ward, I like tune out and I'm not interested in hearing it. I'm just like, you know, when people are anti-vaccine, I think you are just you know, uneducated about the scientific literature. If you read any peer-reviewed journals, any studies, you would vaccinate your child. So you're, you know, you don't understand the process, the scientific process. So I'm with you 100% on that. I think the only space of derivation is this concept that many of our modern first world health problems are not solvable in the current biomedical construct that we've created. And but doesn't biomedicine? But doesn't my biomedicine also affect? When you talk about heart disease and those types of things, I mean, the doctors acknowledge stress and sleep, and 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 certainly diet and behaviors will affect affect that, and they're, and they're going to encourage that and give that advice because they understand that right. that is a is a reality. Right. So that is part of, of of biomedicine. That's not right. them rejecting it, right? Right. And all I'm saying is that the person's use of an essential oil is them trying to come up with the pill that solves a problem. So it, it's, it's them trying to find the easy fix. Um, I put this oil on my neck and I feel less stressed rather than just I get a different job or I don't drive my car or I exercise more. Yeah, it's easier to take a pill. It's easier to put an oil on my toes, right? Like it's easier to do what we call an active um, intervention, which is a pill, an oil, an injection, um, than it is to actually alter your behavioral like script. So Chelsea, I've got this question on placebo, and I think you're the perfect person to answer it. Answer it. All right, this concludes part one. We'll have part two ready for you tomorrow, but I just find this discussion so fascinating. You know, Bob recently teased me over email that this placebo effect has become the new hammer that I like to use to nail down just about any issue that I see sticking up in front of me. And he's not far off because for me, I was trained as a folklorist to view tradition as inherently valuable to the people who keep it alive. 
you know, once the tradition has lost its value, it's no longer passed from person to person, from generation to generation, because, you know, what's the point? So these discussions about the placebo effect, and we get a lot more into the details of this in part two, well, it gives me a way to talk about that value that I couldn't quite articulate before. And I think it's especially helpful to understand that the value isn't always just some silly notion that people imagine in their heads, but it can be a real, measurable, physiological thing. And like I said, we get more into that in part two. Now, as for Shakespeare in the Bush, well, when we were having this conversation with Chelsea, uh, you'll remember that Matt stopped her and asked her to explain witchcraft. Now, when he did that, it put my mind back to this essay, which I read, I don't know, probably 15 years ago. And that's why I wanted to release the mini-sode before I release this episode, to give those of you who listen to it perhaps a better understanding of the role that witchcraft plays in these African peoples, but also because of the discussion that we have around cultural relativism, that it is pretty arrogant and basically elitist to first not recognize that we all look at the world through a traditional worldview, which means that we all carry with us some cultural bias. And second, that imposing our worldview on top of another's worldview is kind of the height of ignorance. You know, it's ignorance in the sense that we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we're superimposing our beliefs on or what impact that has on them. We're just becoming cultural imperialists, robbing them of their own intricate cultural norms. So I have two favorite parts of Shakespeare in the Bush. The first is when the chief says that people are the same everywhere in the world, therefore there must be witches everywhere, and we as the elders who know these things could teach you more about what you cannot see. Now, that reminded me of when I was a missionary, you know, a different kind of elder, who believed that people were the same everywhere, all children of God, therefore they need the ordinance of salvation just like every child of God, and we as the sort of pretend elders that we were, could give these things to them. You know, it just made me think what a naive and laughable and completely understandable point of view that was. Now that I'm 19, I'll do something incredible that blows God's freaking mind. Now my second favorite part of the essay is at the end where the chief turns the table on the American anthropologist. You know, there's a certain elitism behind the idea that we from our civilized Western culture can travel to primitive Africa to learn more about what our ancestors were like before they became civilized. But the chief totally flips that elitism on its head when he says, you should come back and bring us more of your story so that we can tell you their correct meaning. Yeah, this chief of a homestead of 140 people is just as much a cultural elitist as I was as a missionary, claiming from the ignorant bliss of my small Mormon bubble that I could interpret the truth in any situation placed before me. So anyway, that's why I dig this stuff. It reminds me how important it is to me to try and understand things from other people's perspectives, to be an other whisperer so that I don't come across sounding like a pompous, arrogant ass again. Anyone for the closing prayer? Hi, my name's Bob, and I live in West Jordan, Utah. I like to listen to Infants on Thrones as I take long walks around my neighborhood. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com, 
And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.